Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasnow. Okay, today on the show, I welcome Carrie Kelly. Carrie is the founder of Citizen Well, a movement dedicated to the democratization of well-being. For over 20 years, Carrie has been a community organizer and wellness activist. She was the longtime director of Off the Mat Into the World, a nonprofit focused on getting the yoga community civically engaged out to the polls and galvanized around issues relating to social justice. She is also the author of the newly released book, American Detox, The Myth of Wellness and How We Can Truly Heal. In our conversation, Carrie shares with us the harrowing story that bent the arc of her life and eventually thrust her into being a wellness activist. We probe the intersection of social justice and wellness. And Carrie addresses the myth of wellness and how the wellness industry is actually not making us well. We talk about the commodification of ancient traditions in the West for better and worse. We discuss critical race theory, standpoint epistemology, and intersectionality. And Carrie outlines a reimagined wellness, a world in which our well-being is truly bound. Now, before we jump in, if you're interested in building a bridge between your personal wellness and societal well-being, well, then check out Commune's social impact courses, including Civics 101, how to run for office, implicit bias, and how to organize a march. You can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, mindfulness, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. I really enjoy speaking with Carrie. She's unafraid to tackle the thorny topics, and I hope you find this conversation useful. So without further delay, I present to you Carrie Kelly. Yeah. 
Kelly. Jeff Krasno. Ah, we step into the river together. Um, boy, we've known each other for like a generation now. I, I would, would say. say so, yeah. And um, we've worked together in many respects now mm -hmm. over the course of, I would say, 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, I've been an avid follower and fan and um, collaborator from time to time. Mm -hmm. So in the Wanderlust days, we worked um, closely on a number of different initiatives relating to Off the Mountain to the World. That's, that's a nonprofit organization that you directed for quite a long time. Yeah. And I know that was a pivotal moment in your life that you mentioned in the book. So we'll, we'll talk about that. And just first off, congratulations on the book. Thank um, you. As I told you before we started, um, Obviously, it addresses very salient and prescient ideas, um, which we'll excavate. But I also find it, just as a writer myself, a beautifully composed book. Your use of words and vocabulary and analogy and metaphor um, are top notch. So well done. I, I appreciate that coming from a writer because I don't I don't consider myself a writer. I'm an organizer, you know. So this book for me was more of a weaving. Hmm. of like ideas and teachings and teachers like there's a lot of people in this book who shaped you know where I'm at and what I've come to know and what I believe is possible and so I really appreciate that yeah I'm sure um, personalizing the book was not easy for you in fact I've heard you talk about that <laughs> so the book just to be clear for anyone watching this on YouTube is called American Detox here it is uh, it came out last week, July 6th or 7th, Seventh. or June Prince's 6th or 7th. birthday, actually, uh -huh. which is auspicious. It is auspicious. <laughs> um, and, um, and it is multilinear, the nature of the book. So you um, are telling your personal story, your personal wellness journey, mm -hmm. if you will, um, while also um, expounding beautifully uh, on a social critique um, and balancing those two things. So your personal story, I think I'd like to just start for a moment mm -hmm. there um, with what I might call was the inflection point mm -hmm. of your life, which it was an inflection point for many people's lives. So many. Um, and in the chapter that you call Ground Zero. So yeah. Can you just pull on that thread for me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I call it the disruption point of my life, but I now know there have been many, many disruptions. I'm I'm also up there in age, you know. Yeah. After a while, there's more than one. And um and up until, you know, 9/11, I was 25 years old, right? So I had about 25 years under my belt of really being on the should path of like climbing the ladder, of doing everything so-called good, right? Like being mm. the good girl, the good Catholic, the good student, the good athlete, and then eventually the good corporate salesperson and, you know, and then eventually the good activist, right? So like I just kept bringing that uh, orientation into everything I did. And um, and I was really committed to that path. I was like relentless, right? In like climbing and also like climbing out of my situation. I was born into a middle-class neighborhood outside of New York on the wrong side of the tracks. So I really mm. wanted to like climb into almost like another stratosphere yeah. um, of status, right? And um, comfort and wealth. 
And so like that was, I was very committed to that path. Um, and 9-11 was like an enormous disruption. My stepdad was a fireman. He was in Ladder 15, which is in the South Street Seaport, and was one of the first um, to respond uh, mm -hmm. when the planes hit the towers. And from what I understand, ran up 78 flights of stairs to the floor of impact. And then obviously, you know, uh, saving, I'm sure, like, tons and tons of people along the way um and then of, of course died when the towers came down and so that moment destroyed everything i thought i knew hmm. about what was real and what was normal and what was expected of me and what was safe um and really challenged me to question everything yeah you said the word normal in yeah. there which is a a word that you probe yeah. in the book yeah. um and of course uh now here we are trying to bookend a pandemic and quote unquote yes. rush back into normal so you had uh your life pre 9 11 right. where you were chasing the so-called american dream uh the normative american dream and then boom and um and normal didn't really seem acceptable or normal right going forward so i lived in new york we both lived in new york yeah. in that time and um something very abnormal actually occurred for a very short period of time i wonder if you had this mm -hmm. same experience that i had living in new york which um was a change in the way people treated each other because of a sense of collective grief mm -hmm. Um, now that's faded, but there was this moment like on the subway platform where strangers were kind of high-fiving, where people saw their yeah. interconnectedness, which is a huge theme yeah. in the book. It's actually waking up to a consciousness of our mutual interdependence. And sometimes grief yeah. and shock can shake that, yeah. shake us into that state. Did you have a similar oh, experience? Yeah. Oh yeah, and I I think the way that I wrote about it in the book is that it, it was it was also an experience of collective vulnerability. Like mm. we were exposed, and for New Yorkers, and you know this, right? Like we thought we were invincible. Like no one can touch us, right? So that was like a huge shock to the system, right? And it was shared, right? Which was like I think the impetus for 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 what stops time, yeah, and for what disrupts like like dominant culture, um, and and yeah, I um. I mean, my gosh, like the days after 9-11 are such a blur for me, but I, I remember people showing up in ways I had never, ever seen before in my life. And not just for my family, you know, as we were, you know, we were still in a, a space of like searching and, you know, um, and, and recovering and, you know, trying to find answers, trying to figure out how this could have happened, but just all over New York, right? Like the bucket brigade, you know, people making meals for one another, people just like piling onto the pile, right? Yeah. Volunteers just like stepping onto the pile to remove debris, to search for body. I mean, people did unimaginable things in that moment. And Rebecca Solnit, who, as you know, is an amazing writer, writes about it in this book called um, a paradise built in hell about how after um, great tragedies and, and moments of enormous calamity and devastation, there's often an aperture yeah. where humanity rises to the occasion, right? And people do the most amazing 
profound, generous, kind, compassionate things. And I, I definitely remember that after 9-11. In fact, I also remember the first time I heard a cab horn honk. Right, that first like cabbie, like beep, beep, get out of my way. Like that first moment I was in Manhattan where I was like, oh shit, you know, that that's a sign of like before, right? Before times, yeah, the honeymoon is over. And I'll, and I'll also share that there's this other perspective I, I write about in the book by Naomi Klein yeah. about that same moment called the shock doctrine. <laughs> and she writes about how, um, it, often in moments after devastation, 9-11, Katrina, you know, wars, earthquakes, um, that people in power often sweep in and exploit yeah. our vulnerability, right? And declare wars in times of great fear and, um, you, you know, exposure. And so it's interesting, right, to hold these two very kind of contradictory perspectives on the immediate, right? And, and for me, it's really helpful, right? Because it's like, to your point, there's this huge opening and opportunity and invitation for people to reconnect and remember right mm. our interdependence and right there's a system <laughs> and a culture that we're a part of um that is is ready and waiting to exploit us yeah boy okay so much there so first <laughs> of all um you, there's a beautiful passage in the book uh where you talk about remembering Mm -hmm. uh, being the opposite of dismembering. Mm -hmm. So that's an Alan Watts, uh, mm -hmm. metaphor. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's where you got it, but, mm -hmm. um, he pulls on that, um, quite brilliantly and, um, that we exist in this state of separateness where we're dismembered. We're literally chopped up or we feel as a product of direct experience, chopped up from the world, separate from nature, separate mm -hmm. from each other in competition with mm -hmm. nature, uh, in competition with each other. Um, which that is the feeling that underscores so much of our suffering, mm -hmm. including racial inequity. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is this moment where we remembered, mm -hmm. you know, our common humanity or shared humanity. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, as you said, mm -hmm. um, there was this shock doctrine as mm -hmm. Naomi Klein writes about, um, where, you know, the powers that be swooped in mm -hmm. to consolidate power and um, after that kind of honeymoon of collective grief of outpouring was over, there was a new paradigm yeah. that anchored. And um, big and time it, changed everything, really. Yeah. Surveillance, the Patriot Act, right? Uh, war, right? Yeah. And, and I want you, know, you to maybe talk about that um, a little bit more because for. For me, when I look back upon it in reflecting on when I was reading that section in the book, um, I started to think about that this was the moment where patriotism was reframed mm -hmm. to something that's nativist mm -hmm. and xenophobic, mm -hmm. um, where na more nationalism, how we how we mm -hmm. consider nationalism being this very nativist, very xenophobic, you know, um, scapegoating the other, mm -hmm. um, et cetera, where nationalism and patriotism actually could be something quite positive. It could mm -hmm. be 
Like I'm willing to pay my taxes. So there's someone that I don't even know across the country that can get a good education or that can get healthcare, or I'm willing to serve my country in this particular way, because I believe in the collective greatness of it. But in this moment, the whole thing got reframed towards this America first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, I want to say yeah. that I think so. Yeah, right. That was a huge marker and pivot. And again, like aperture and opportunity, right? Mm. That people in power took advantage of. Um, and that moment has happened many times yeah. in our history. And I'm even thinking about the Immigration Act of 1924, right? Where Calvin Coolidge, when he signed that act, um, said something along the lines of, um, we have to make America America again which harkens hmm. right to Trump's right. slogan. And so um, um, I, I feel like, you know, because of the ground this country has been built on, right? It's a ground, in fact, of separation, right? That core wound, the idea that we could come and take someone else's land and commit genocide, right? And exploit human labor, right? For our own gain. Um, that is a part of our bedrock in this country. And so that um, that dismembering has happened over and over and over and over again, right? You can even look at the Civil War, right? And the aftermath of the, right? The, the rebound, right? Yeah. Um, after the Civil War. And so that's happened, Jim Crow, right? That's happened over and over and over again, where in a moment of vulnerability, right? There have been people in power that have made a move, right? Um, toward sort of a supremacist, separate, um, nationalist, nativist, um, um, way of being. Um, so it's not, so I just want to name that yeah. it's not new. Um, 9-11 is just like kind of the modern incarnation of what has always been. Yeah. And some people might argue that there was a similar power grab during COVID. Yeah. Um, kind of depending where you land on that. Well, there's, yeah. there was certainly a, an ideology, a, a parallel there ideologically, right? Um, in the way in which um, COVID revealed also our deep interdependence. I mean, it was undeniable, right? You had like a virus that was being spread and people were being impacted disproportionately for sure. Um, um, and I'm just thinking about like the force of socialization, right? Um, and, and how pervasive and persistent that is, how like our minds have been wired towards individual freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Above everything else and how quick we, I say we, because there were a lot of people, many people from a state of fear and vulnerability were to, to kind of like cling, right? To, to self-preservation and to, mm -hmm. and to pull themselves out of the collective and assume that they were, I mean, I know that yeah. I realize this is arguable, but it, but it does feel like a similar pattern. Well, it was, it was wicked in the sense that the best thing that we could do for the collective was actually to stay away from one another yeah. for a period of time. That's right. So it was very for the sake wicked. of the collective. Yeah. So the irony. Yeah. And um, yeah, well. And, you know, the sacrifice that that called. I mean, so like in some ways, right, that asked us to sacrifice ourselves and things that we needed and things that gave us joy, like connection, like seeing our family, like traveling, like going to places that gave us joy. Um, and I feel like, you know, as a culture, we struggle with that. Like, what are the things that we are willing to risk for collective care? There has been, since the country's inception, a tug of war mm -hmm. 
between the collective good and individual freedom? And can you have equality and individual freedom at the same time? So this is a very um, complex um, philosophical question. So, you know, we had all these documents that, that, that almost read like, you know, that the framers were smoking a freaking peace pipe, you know, it's like the common defense, we, the people, you know, uh, um, all these words, union, mm -hmm. you know, checks and balances, like actual the, checks and balances in government. And at the same time that all men were created equal and died by their creator with certain inalienable rights among them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which has been framed really as the accumulation of individual personal property and wealth. Mm -hmm. So you have, um, and obviously there's tons of hypocrisy in, in mm -hmm. those early documents in terms of what the reality that existed on the ground. But just from a political theory point of view, you had this notion of like, we're all created equal, and then we all have this right to pursue mm -hmm. happiness and property. Well, mm -hmm. of course, only a very few people actually mm -hmm. had those freedoms. Mm -hmm. um, but there is this tension mm -hmm. between equality and the collective and communal good and communal health and the common defense mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. this notion of the rugged individual mm -hmm. uh, able to kind of flex their individual civil liberties. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. and we've, you know, this is a, we've gone through, you know, different, iterations of this mm -hmm. where you have you know um you know the, the civil war and then you have jim crow yeah. on the other side of it and then you have the new deal mm -hmm. and a graduated income tax and all of these other social programs and then all of a sudden you know you move into the 50s mm -hmm. you know um and you know you can just keep you know playing this that's out that's right that cycle so yeah. yeah, where are we now? I it's mean, like, yeah. <laughs> I, I and I appreciate you holding the contradiction because I actually think that's exactly what it is. I think the spirit of what you're naming is a contradiction. And I think you're right. You know, one of the things I think about when I think about the founding documents and the, the founding spirit of our country is that there are really good intentions, but the impact um, was disparate, right? If not really harmful, um, because n not everybody was included in that document. I was, I was not included in that document, right? right. So that document talked about all men being created equal and all, pe and all men having a right to, yeah. but they were yeah. talking about, you know, white, white property owning, yeah. Christian, able bodied property, Christian right. men, right? Yeah. Like they and they were very clear about that. They stated yeah. that in the document. And so many people were left out of that. And that actually, that truth, right? Feels um, analogous to what we're experiencing right now, this enormous divide, right, between who gets to have freedom and who doesn't, who gets to be well and who doesn't. And mm -hmm. that conundrum that you're talking about, that contradiction feels, it, it actually feels like um, important in the way in which it points to practice, because it's not a binary. It's not either individual freedom or collective care. Right. It's actually quite dynamic, right? And it's mutual, right? And inside of mutuality is relationship. And so it's it's like the kind of thing that we have to live into. And and we, ex you know, I do collective care work all the time and we're always exploring the politics of coll collective care. And it is not without conflict because different people need different things. And so, so to me, it's like, 
It's not a question of is it this or is it that. It's a question of like how do we navigate, right, folks deserving, right, their unique individual freedoms and needs, but also how we tend to our collective care and survival. Yeah. Well, it is a philosophical koan, really. Um, and to practice, I think, yeah. right? Like, cause it's not just conceptual. It's like, to me, it's like the, it's like what happens when we get into like the messy middle with one <laughs> another in shared yeah. space. And it's not clear. No. In fact, if you really want to pull it out, you could ground it in, in 20th century particle physics, which essentially says, well, matter is not even really matter. It's right. representational. It's energy. And if we look at matter, it's in constant dialogue and connection yes, and communication that. with everything else around it. That. And so, yes, I am an organism yeah. that is sitting here in this chair, uh, distinct, but not disjointed yes. from you. Because as I speak, we have a sociogenomic relationship going on. So I'm uh, affecting your gene expression just That's as right. I'm talking to you. And I could all of a sudden just scream at you out of the blue right. and you would have a a, a spurt of epinephrine or cortisol from your adrenal glands, and I would be just essentially being in each other's presence, we alter our biochemistry. 100%. So we are both individuals, but we are we are woven into a mutually interdependent Indra's net <laughs> where we are distinct, but in no way disjointed from each other. And this is the Ugh, this yeah. is the balance and the tension. And the play and the dance, right? Because I think often I feel like we're trying to play in either the individual sandbox or in the collective sandbox. Mm. And actually, um, the, the the juice is in the node, right? It's at the intersection, <laughs> right? And, and if we can learn how to like exist there in, in all of its complexity and messiness and dyna dynamicism um, and, and transformation, like that to me is where there's possibility, right? But but I feel like we're so quick to be like, I'm in this camp now, and now I'm in this camp, and your camp sucks, and my camp's right, yes, you yeah. know? And actually, the way, the way that you're talking about our interdependence actually speaks to the way in which I think we need to, to be practicing. Yeah, well, this is the Tao. Um, yeah, that's the, right. <laughs> the ability Not to, new. In to fact, hold, very old. Yeah, to hold... Um, to hold opposites That's and right. to function in the course of nature such that we bring opposites into some form of sensitive order or asymmetrical coherence or dynamic coherence. Um, and uh, of course, you know, we're in this moment where we seem to be more polarized and atomized uh, and entrenched in our echo chambers. Um, and uh, and obviously we're in this new terrain because we're 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 back to a certain Serengeti of Facebook or what I call it, which is um, you know we're we're undergoing a non-consensual psychological experiment called social media, which seems to have um, exacerbated yeah. um, these polar extremes and polemics, such that it's been very hard to find any form of. Um, of profitable, you know, conversation, um, and uh, anyway, so we can we can pull on, on that, social but, media, but but really cool and awesome things happen in person. This is absolutely, and this is uh, I think why we all need to commit to trying to have conversations, yeah, um, yeah. in real life, 
because you and I, we're probably not going to agree on everything, but we're going to find cooperation and um, potential solution when we're sitting here across from each other and we can play in, in in a sandbox together. Um, And social media is an awful sandbox for that. Oh, it's terrible. And, you know, and one of the things I just think that um, we've become really bad at because I think of, of, of the ways in which we've been indoctrinated in dominant culture is that we're really conflict avoidant. And Mm. it's almost like we've become atrophied in, in that arena, Mm. right? Like we don't have any muscle or skill around how to hold conflict, right? So we either want conflict-free, neutral as if, right? As if that's even possible environments, or we take to to social media and we have these like battles with one another. Yeah, yeah. it's hard, right? And, And in fact, the human experience is, is inherently conflictual, right? Like we're, we're, there's tension and we're bouncing off one another and, yeah. and we're merging and we're separating and all the things that you were describing. And so, you know, one of the practices I think, right, that are going to help us learn how to be together into hopefully a shared future is like, it is learning how to embrace conflict, learning how to navigate conflict, mm-hmm. learning how to hold disagreement. And I don't mean like, um, can't we all just get along? I don't mean that. And I don't mean common ground. I mean, like actually like being able to be witness mm-hmm. to one another um, and all of our differences and all of our disagreements and all of the ways in which we're having a very different lived experience of being alive right now. But we've lost, not only have we lost that ability, but dominant culture has sort of washed it out of us, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't want, it either wants to divide us and keep us in like separate camps or it wants to kind of wash everything neutral so that there's no, you know, discomfort or, you know, no, you know, rumble or, you know, and that that's just not realistic and it's not healthy. It's not actually moving us in the right direction. Yeah. I'll uh, try to refrain from making too many vituperative uh, comments about NPR, but NPR is like an outlet that I've loved my whole life yeah. and I can barely listen to it right now yeah. because it is so uh, eggshelled. You yeah. know, I'm like, Cameron, just come and say it. Yeah. You know, there's asymmetry on the left and the right. Just say it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, but, um, but, but yeah, careful, there is a people cautious. pleasing, yeah. cautious. Um, yeah. And I, I also think, you know, I think about, you know, as an activist, right, the, the way in which we've become super performative, yeah. you know, especially on social media, because social media is a stage by which we perform everything, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's like, how can we curate the perfect, most woke thing to say, right, to the world that's socially acceptable in this moment and won't get me canceled, right? Like, none of that is real, yeah. right? And it actually holds us back from having, like, the real conversations and showing up authentically. And so I'm, I'm 100% with you, like, where are people saying the real thing and having the messy Mm. conversations and and what are the ways in which we're getting caught up in the perfect language or the perfect move or the you know the perfect um uh, performance of our our wokeness or of our consciousness or of our left or our rightness and how is that actually holding us back from the truth yeah yeah well i will say you've been very brave and i would say the tip of the spear in this regard um, particularly on your own social media, because, you know, some, I mean, you're in my feed and sometimes I'm like, whoa, there she's like, man, she <laughs> went for it. She really went for it. Um, and uh, and I get scared all the time. I'm I just sure. want to name yeah. that. Like sometimes it takes me like three hours to write a social media <laughs> post because the part of me that's been conditioned, right? Yeah. The part of me that's afraid of speaking the truth, of being seen, of being called out, 
of, of people leaving me, right? Of losing belonging, <laughs> you know, right. of being invalidated. Those are real, right? That's that's part of my human experience. And so I have to do a lot of like practicing. Like when I want to say something, I, I just have to sort of like, you know, uh, detox, if you will, all of that, um, th those kind of like limiting um uh, orientation so that I can actually say the thing that feels true for me and also be prepared that people will disagree. Yeah. Well, I think if you commit yourself to rigor, mm -hmm. you inure yourself a bit from cancel culture, if mm -hmm. you will, because people who know you know how rigorously you are committed and how thoughtful you are about a particular issue. And, um, and you know, that's at least been my approach yeah. is that I'm going to just be so thorough yeah. <laughs> that you can't cancel me because I've written 20,000 words. So what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, when I, with you, you're so committed, you've been so committed for so long that nobody can question your intentions. Ish. Well, and it, but intention's not enough. Right. So okay. like, I'm just thinking about my book writing process and you were talking about, you know, like I researched the hell out of this book yes. and I have footnotes for my footnotes. Just to be clear, right? So like, and and that's, um, some of that is shaped by perfectionism, right? I just, it was like, it was never enough for me. I had to keep putting in more. I had to keep rewriting sections. I wrote this book during the pandemic. So like the world was changing so quickly, <laughs> yeah. right? While I was writing about it. And so, so I'm a hundred percent with you. I do think we have to have a responsibility to be thorough, to do the research, to listen to the people who know, um, and, and to, to rigor. And I also think we have to be prepared to make mistakes. I mean, that's right. the other thing that, you know, I know like there are 96,000 opportunities in this book for me to have made a mistake. Sure. That's a lot. That's a lot of mistakes. I can't, it's possible I have made. And so, and so I just say that because I've had to build a resilience and like a capacity to be wrong. Yeah. And that also allows me to take the leap. Well, there's humility required yeah. in, um, in, um, the ability or to to be wrong yeah. essentially actually i'll read a bit in here because i want to so i, I want to go back um to this post 9 11 period in your life where you were obviously in a state of significant grief but you were right on the forefront of this next chapter of this mm -hmm. eye-opening mm -hmm. thing so i'm going to read a little bit maybe let's see about Difficult moments and courage. So this is from page 27. But difficult moments are also an invitation to courage. They are often the times when you realize that you can choose to do something different. Instead of conquering your fears, you move into relationship with them instead of conquering your fears. <laughs> when we learn to get comfortable with the uncomfortable, we are released from its grip. We might appear on the service as chaos is actually freedom. Mm -hmm. Freedom from the struggle against the fundamental ambiguity of simply being human. The one truth, the thing we know beyond a doubt is that nothing is fixed. And to be human is a dynamic experience that is ever changing. Permanence is a myth we buy into because we fear its opposite. The only way to get free is to let go. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously then pushes into um, some uh, insightful comments around vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Well, and what I'll say about that passage, um, is that, uh, okay. So I, I remember in the aftermath of nine 11, I mean, I was, 
So like I tell a, a story of, of being vulnerable and being lost and it was unimaginable and the grief was horrific. And I was also, am I allowed to curse? Yeah, yeah. I was an <laughs> asshole. I was an asshole. Like I, my, um, like I literally was out to fix as if, it, if I, as if I could fix 9-11, like I was like, I'm going to control the conditions of this moment sure. because I couldn't tolerate its opposite. I was like, I couldn't tolerate the idea that my life had, as I had known it, had been lost. Um, I couldn't tolerate the discomfort. I couldn't tolerate the pain. And I couldn't tolerate the fact that like I had no idea who I was and what my like what my life would be now um, or what our life, right, as like a, a city and a country would. So anyway, I just like so much of that for me was rooted in control, hmm. right? And and one of the big learnings as I was kind of going through this, this process is that when I'm afraid, when things in my life feel out of control, where I go is I try to control them. Yeah. And that's been a pattern for me on every level, right? So I have to be really cautious because whenever something well, scary happens, I like get into control yeah. mode and I'm like, how do I control everything and everyone around me? You know, which is yeah. like, uh, if, which is futile. Well, yes. I mean, and you're not alone. We created Abrahamic gods and methods that's of right. divination right. and that's every right. form of prophecy that's to right. address uncertainty. So that's right. Um, and or to understand it or, yeah. yeah, or to predict it, right? And I'm just thinking about how wellness feeds perfectly into that. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. The ways in which we were invited by a dominant culture and wellness to control our bodies and to control our minds and to control our desti destiny and to manifest our, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, and I'm not saying that there's not beauty and practice, right, in those invitations, but, but when it's um, shaped and colored, right, by like our, um, are, you know, um, kind of like dominant, you know, um, shaping, right. To like control everything and to have to know what the outcome is going to look like and to not be in relationship with the unknown, right. And the constantly evolving and the impermanent, then it gets into really tricky territory and it yeah. can often get very, very harmful. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there's all these, I mean, much of Eastern philosophical thought, mm -hmm is based around this notion mm -hmm. that the future is a big void mm -hmm. out of which the only thing Emptiness. That, that has ever existed is the now, the eternal, everlasting present that spins out of sunyata, right? the, the, the void of the future. And, you know, we simply just cannot know. Yeah. And, um, and becoming, as you say, um, comfortable in that discomfort of the uncertainty of not knowing is a is a spiritual practice. Oof. I mean, deeply and and even existential for me, because I really had I didn't know how to I didn't know how to do something different. Right. Like yeah. I was like, I only know how to control things or or think that I know how to control. Like right. it's a delusion, right, that we can control anything or anyone. And yet that's where I went to every time that was familiar. It was easy. It was comfortable for me. And so that moment was like the, the, the like rug was ripped out from mm. under me. And and I was terrified of the emptiness of the void. So in your process of healing, you did discover mm -hmm. certain modalities that are mm -hmm. still very, very key to your life, but then had a double edge to mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit mm -hmm. about kind of those kind of initial epiphanies 
that you had on the mat and then where that took you? Well, so because I was, um, I've already shared that I was like all about controlling and like fixing the situation. I was also all about numbing. I was extremely dissociated in my body. So I was like, you know, enraged in every moment. My family, I was so hard on my family, right? Who was also hurting, mm. but I had sort of like stepped into the authority role in my family. You know, my mom had just lost the patriarch in our family. And so I kind of, I moved in with my mom and I stepped into that space. And so I, um, you know, I, I was really invested in like not feeling and not confronting what was happening, right. And not facing the reality. Um, and I had a practice, a yoga practice at the time for all the wrong reasons. I was an athlete and I was, um, I had an eating disorder. And so I was doing Bikram yoga and it just so happened that the studio was right across from my stepdad's old firehouse mm. on, uh, 48th and 8th. It was a uh, 54 and four. And that used to be the firehouse that he spent most of his time before he went down to the South street seaport. And every time I laid down in Shavasana, I heard sirens, hmm. which it's Times square. So like, of course, <laughs> <laughs> so like I get that. Yeah. And like, there is, there was a way in which I fell apart and felt on my mat that I couldn't access off my mat. Like I just, like I, like it wasn't available to me. I hadn't been trained, right? I hadn't been conditioned to feel and emote um, and to be vulnerable. And so I would hit my mat and I kept coming back. And I was like that girl in the corner of the room, like hysterically crying and like a mess. But I was feeling, I was feeling something I had never felt before. I was feeling really close to my stepdad, which felt really special to me. And while I didn't have words for it at the time, I knew there was something to what I was doing. I knew something was happening to me. Yeah. And so that was sort of the impetus. That was the thing that got me to go like, I, I want more of that. I don't know what it is, but I want, I want to feel right. I want to feel, I want to grieve. I want to be close to, I want to feel close to my stepdad. I want, you know, so, so that is actually what kind of got me on the path. And it wasn't like an epiphany. It wasn't like an enlightened moment. Right. <laughs> it was like a messy unraveling, but it was like, it was like a seed, you know, of something. I was like, oh, that feels different than what I've ever felt before. And that's actually what got me started. Hmm. Yeah. And asana or physical practice um, is a precursor mm -hmm. is an antecedent to uh, psychological opening mm -hmm. i mean in many cases it was really just the setup for for meditation um yeah pre-western commodification of it but um but clearly like this this is a pattern that I think, again, you're not alone here, yeah. you know, where you finish your practice, you go into Shavasana and yeah, the floodgates the open. Completely. And right. And this goes back to what you were saying about dismemberment, how dominant culture and society and the structures and just the way in which I was raised and conditioned, you know, I was raised Catholic was where it encouraged me to be disembodied, right? To not feel, right? To mm -hmm. not be, don't be an emotional woman, right? Like right. all these messages I got, you know, don't be vulnerable, don't ask for help, don't need help, it's weak, right? So like yeah. all that cultural conditioning kind of shaped me to be like Teflon, you know what I mean? And, and to yeah. want to, you know, control and fix everything. And that my time on them, it was like, it was like a remembering, literally like, oh, I'm human, I'm vulnerable, I get to hurt, I get 
get to feel. And, um, and it was scary and it, but it was also like, it was profound. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is a little bit of a tangent, but <laughs> I love tangents. There, there's a just wonderful art form in Japanese aesthetics called Kintsugi art, um, which is essentially the, um, demolition of ceramics of like a tea kettle or a teapot right. or whatever. And then the reassembling or reconstituting of it with a molten gold. Yep. And so sometimes you see these ceramics and they're absolutely marvelously beautiful and rendered. And, uh, and they're pulled together by these veins of gold mm -hmm. that are referred to as precious scars. Mm -hmm. and it's just like so beautiful. It's stunning. And, and, it, and it, yeah. And the metaphor there, of course, is life is, there is beauty in life falling apart. Yeah. And then on the other side, reconstituting it, yeah. remembering it. And, um, you know, so many religious texts, when they talk about a connection with God, it's always the memory of God. Yeah. And so there is this notion in remembering that I think is very poignant. Well, um, and it points also yeah. to what you were talking about, about the cracks. It points also to, well, of course, there's like lots of beautiful poetry about mm -hmm. how cracks let the light in. But it's also making me think about what you were saying before about the many ruptures, right? The places of brokenness, the places where we become dismembered, the places where as individuals we become we, we feel separate or the ruptures in right yeah. and how it's at, it's in the place of the rupture that the gold is at mm. right that yeah. like the the juice the <laughs> like right the the yeah. beauty right is in the rupture literally well it's like the biodiversity yeah. in the forest is most abundant where like the forest meets the pasture yeah. you know or the sea meets the or the, yeah, the, the, the seams, seaside right the seams yeah I love so, that so much. Yeah. So that cool. was, that was literally, and I often say like I was falling apart and falling back, back together mm, again. Yeah. Um, and so that sort of got me really curious. And I, again, like I didn't have like an idea, I didn't have words to what was happening, but I did that thing where like, I was like, I want more, I want more of this feeling. And I quit my job and moved across a country, came to San Francisco. Right. And, and just, um, hook, line and sinker fell into the wellness world in all of the ways Okay, so then I think that brings us to a good point here. So, um, because for all of the wonders that the modality of yoga and meditation was offering you, you also discovered the darker side of the commodification of that world. And, and the, uh, um, the, I would say, unequal access to of mm -hmm. that that's associated with that world so there's that that i want mm -hmm. you to pull on yeah and i think also um just because we have such a long entrenched relationship with sean corn yeah um, her role in that her role in yeah, that. yeah yeah well i like to say that the yoga you know, even as I became aware of the hypocrisies, right, within the wellness world, I actually believe the yoga and, and the meditation and the practices were doing its job on me, yeah. right? Because I, I now understand those practices as the way in which we lift the veils, mm -hmm. right? The way in which we see clearly, right? So it was inevitable, right? Like I was like, I'm all in. <laughs> so yeah. it was inevitable that not only was I, I was I going to change, but I was going to to see very clearly the world um, 
as it was and not as I wanted it to be. And so that's exactly what happened. You know, I was like obsessed with my practice, blissed out, dewy face, you know, mala beads, Lululemon pants. I did all of the things I was like, you know, and I was also that annoying person that like has to recite sutras everywhere they go to anyone who would listen. So I was also like wanting to like indoctrinate other people (laughs) in my new religion, including my ex-husband at the time, which is a whole other story. But, but I was, um, I was that person and I was practicing at a a yoga studio on Folsom and fourth with Larry Schultz. You probably remember good old Larry Schultz from Jersey. That's right. Um, what was the name of that studio? It's yoga. It's yoga. So that's where I did my teacher training. That was my sangha. That was my studio. Those were my people. And it was in a part of town in San Francisco called Soma. Um, And, you know, every day I would walk in and out of that yoga studio. And in the awning where the door to the studio was, lived a bunch of homeless youth. But, and they were always, they were like a fixture. They were just mm-hmm. always there. And so we would just come and go as yogis in our like blissed out bubbles. And after a while, I, I kind of like looked back and I was like, huh, you know, I was like curious. And then I would stop. And then I was like, what the fuck is this, right? Like, how is it that I can have this blissed out, feel good, like transformative experience on my mat when people right outside the door, literally on the property are struggling to survive, much less be well. And so that's that's what got me stirred up and curious. And by stirred up, I mean like I started to like question, like I started to question yeah. wellness. I started to question the practice. I started um, uh, to question myself, right? And why why I got to why I got to benefit when people don't even have basic human needs, right? I really right. that was real dissonance for me in my practice, and I I just couldn't reconcile it. Quite frankly, like I couldn't yeah. rationalize it away. I couldn't positive vibes only it. And so Sean Korn came into my life right around there, and I was in a class with her, and I I joke, but I'm not joking that it was like a 14 minute pigeon, <laughs> right? And on the left side, I think you called it agonizingly unfair or I something mean, it was like just that <laughs> unjust and yeah. horrible um and um with and you know i i've come to love those moments now but um but she said you know um you know what if you were to take um your yoga off the mat and into the world mm-hmm. she also said what i was at the at the time just still kind of reeling from 9 11 she said what if you were to serve from your from your wounds from your place of wounding yeah. Right. And I was in so much pain and I was so confused about what I was experience, experiencing in the culture of wellness and yoga. And, and I felt completely called like those words landed in my body so perfectly and clearly in that moment. And I ran up to her after class and I said, that thing you're saying, that off the mat into the world thing, this is before off the mat was an organization. This is when it was just a campaign. She was doing a campaign with Ashley Judd for Mm. World AIDS and, uh, or for Youth AIDS rather. And I ran up to her and I was like, I'm going to do this thing you said. I'm going to do this thing called off the mat into the world. And she was like totally freaked out by me. She was like, all right, uh, cool. 
you know, yeah. like I was like some stalker student. And I did. I actually started like a, a, a small group in San Francisco with a bunch of other yoga teachers. And we would meet up at Samovar Tea House and we would talk about how to take our yoga off the mat in the world and what were the issues locally that we could start to organize around and respond to. So I just got like, I, I was so, I can't even believe I did that actually, but I just felt super called to start doing that. And long story short, a couple years later, off the mat into the world became an actual nonprofit. And I found out about it from a friend of mine. And I was like, how could they not have invited me? I'm too, you know, and like, so that's like, right. this, that's the beginning of our story. Like, and I went in on that. I'm like, wait a minute. How could they have done, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was like, but it was true calling. Like that was one of the moments in my life where I was like, like the, 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 the download came into my body, you know, and I, and I moved in that direction. And that's really when yoga for me became more than a thing I did for myself individually. It became an inquiry, right? Um, an act of service um, and um, um, a vehicle, I believe, right? For yeah. which, for, for how we can actually create the conditions for all people to be well. Right. So there is, of course, as one begins to really deepen one's practice and excavate the true meanings of yoga, to yoke, union, yeah. realization of the non-self, samadhi, yeah. the realization of impermanence, um, this understanding or grokking of the world as mutually interdependent and interconnected, um, as living as part of Indra's net, you know, all yeah. of our dependent origination, yeah. pratitya, mutapatata, like all these ideas. Um, there is, there's a conflict there between all of those ideas and the way that the wellness industry yeah. shows up in the world as being hyper-individualized or hyper-individually focused. Yeah. So can you pull yeah. a little bit on the, the cleavage there? Well, and I, and I appreciate, right, the, also the, the reverence to the actual teachings and the actual wisdom, right. which, which actually speaks to all the things I write about in this yeah. book, even like the Maya and the illusion and the, the delusion that holds us back from the truth, the kleshas, which translate to literally the poisons, yeah. <laughs> right? That, that we take in the samskaras, the imprints, right? Of our right. personal and collective wounds. And so yes, to all of that. And the way in which the Western, um, modern, you know, wellness um, industry or culture has evolved, has been shaped and informed by the larger dominant culture, right? right. Um, and and there are many parts of that, right, that you can dissect, and I call them in the book myths, right? Um, but the way that they manifest is the way that um, you know many of the practices that um, we know as wellness now have origins in indigenous and Southeast Asian medicine, right? Um, and how many of us are, are working with those medicines without permission, right? How they've been appropriated, how they're a part of our history of colonization, right? And imperialism, um, even the story of how Indra Devi, right, came over and brought modern yoga to the U.S. happened after the Immigration Act of 1924, which precluded people, right, from, from Southeast coming. from coming, right? So politics was deeply embedded in how yoga came West and, and also how we understand yoga, right? Because Indra Devi became the face yeah. of, of yoga, especially in LA, right here where we are, right? Among the Hollywood types who were looking to, to you know, who yeah. were seeking the, you know, so-called exotic, you know, 
Totally. Well, Yogananda came too. Yep. So and Vivekananda, and Vivekananda even before Yogananda. That's right. Um, I think you talk about when he. I think it was eighteen ninety three. Eighteen ninety three. Yeah. To the International Congress in Chicago, which is like my favorite. That is my yeah. favorite origin story because you know there's so much talk often in wellness and yoga about how yoga is not political, and Vivekananda actually came over within a deeply political context. He came sure. over to to speak out at the Parliament of Religions um, about imperialism. Right. And, colon yeah. and colonization in India. And Yogananda came in, I believe, 1910 yeah. under very similar auspices, actually, yeah. to Boston at a yeah. similar kind of a gathering. congressional yeah. or, uh, gathering and, um, and proposed a very new vision for yoga as being inclusive mm -hmm. of, uh, of Western philosophy and of Christianity. Yeah. And they put... Uh, Jesus, like Jesus yeah. right there up on the dais yeah. um, next to Babaji and, um, and, and his gurus um, and, uh, and formed, uh, obviously, the Self-Realization Fellowship here in Los Angeles, but also just a vision of yoga in the West mm -hmm. as something that stood for unity among nations, something mm -hmm. that was actually very, very Shared. political. Yeah. Um, but of course... You know, and so on some level, we have to acknowledge that, you know, Vivekananda and Yogananda and even later, you know, mm -hmm. Patabi Joyce, these people came from India to the United States yep. because they saw an opportunity in the West to spread these ideas in a way that they felt that could ameliorate the human condition. So it wasn't all just us kind of expropriating. No. And, just to, but, <laughs> and just to make it even messier, you know, one of the things I learned in the research was that Krishnamacharya was actually sponsored by um, the Indian government, right? Mm. Um, and at the time it was an, a, an, an, you know, a very nationalistic Indian government. And they, um, 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 you know, they invited uh, Krishnamacharya to create a new system of yoga that was more Western friendly, in fact. Right. Right. And that pulled from calisthenics and right. So it's so anyway, right. so like there was an intention to export yoga to the West. Right. So I just want to hold that. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not a clean like. Um, um, you know, it's, it's not like bad person, good person. It's not one way or it's a very complex history um, um, on both sides of the issue. And as a white woman in wellness, right, it feels really important. And, and also the way in which wellness has has become really dominant, right, in the West, um, um, it does feel really important to acknowledge, right, the history of how it got here and how it was adapted and who adapted it. And then you, you to your point, right, that's not, that's not the only myth, right? There's also the way in which um, uh, wellness practices have been commodified, right? Um, and, and many people have made lots of money, right, off of medicine that is actually not theirs, right? Um, and how it's been individualized, right? How often what wellness, the dominant industry of wellness is selling us is individual solutions to very complex systemic problems. Yeah. Well, I think this has come into stark relief, particularly in the last 20 years. I think like in the 60s and 70s, you had counterculture adopting some of these ideas of yoga, meditation, and Eastern philosophy as a response to hyper-materialism, mm -hmm. uh, right. military-industrial complex, et cetera. And you, know, you had these figures like Ram Dass, et cetera, which I think were more reflective of the true spirit of these modalities. Deeply political, right? Deeply political, yeah. In, uh, associated with the new left, anti-war. 
And then you move more into the 21st century, where then you start to get this efflorescence of large companies, uh, public companies that are trading on yoga, often in the apparel space, et cetera. And you also have companies like Hay House and Sounds True mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, Yoga International and, you know, companies that I felt have been actually very heart led. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not the entire industry, well, but it is this part that holds up th this uh, fake notion of perfectionism to make us feel like we're not enough and then markets toys and trinkets and apparel and all this stuff to address our perceived deficiencies. Totally. Yeah. And and yeah, and, and I work with all of these companies, right? <laughs> I'm in relationship. I also am a yoga teacher who has who have who has benefited, right, from selling yoga a medicine, right? So I just want to name that like I yeah. too am situated inside of the system. And I think the contradiction that it feels important for all of us to hold is that you know, like it's, it's sort of like back to that, like tug of war. It's like, you know, um, these are medicines that we, you know, aren't, weren't designed to be sold. Right. And, and profited from, and yet we exist in a capitalist culture and there's no escaping that there's yeah. no purity from that. And, and I even like, you know, I'm even cautious about like saying like, well, who are the good ones and who are the bad ones? Right. Because we're all kind of situated in this very messy structure. And I don't know, like, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I critique capitalism in this book and I don't know the way out. Yeah. You know, I don't know what the new structures, the new less extractive, more generative structures look like. I do though know that people are thinking about it and that that's the, that's the, the way we need to, it's the direction that we actually all need to move in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there are models. I look at companies that are commercial and commercializing, um, you know, like Patagonia, yeah. which has been a B Corp forever. Yeah. And they have a double or a triple bottom line business, yeah. plain and simple. Yeah. So this is what conscious capitalism is. And I think that there's a very strong case to be made, you know, that capitalism has lifted a lot of people out of poverty yeah. that, I mean, this gets into um, uh, like distributive justice concepts, but you know, like there was a political theorist in the, I think, late 60s, early 70s named John Rawls, who argued that essentially um, capitalism grows the pizza, the size of the pizza, such that even the smallest piece is bigger than the communist pizza or the socialist mm -hmm, pizza mm -hmm. if you were to cut that mm -hmm. up perfectly evenly. And, you know, again, I, I don't necessarily, mm -hmm. um, I'm not an economist. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what we can both agree on is that extractive capitalism that externalizes all of its true costs mm -hmm is incredibly destructive. Mm -hmm. And so. And I so. think I just feel like some of the conundrum um, that all of us can be grappling with on an individual, a collective and organizational level is um, to what extent do we let profits lead? And, you know, and in working with different, you know, I do a lot of consulting and social impact consulting with different organizations. And I can, I, I, I can assure you that that is always the line in the sand that trips people up. Even folks with like the best intentions, B Corp companies, you know what I mean? Triple yeah. bottom line companies, conscious capitalists, folks who are really trying to do, who have the intention of doing the right thing. I think often we get um, um, into areas where we have to make choices. <laughs> 
of like profits or people. And that's where things I think get very messy. And, and again, like I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe in like purity politics. I don't think there's any purity inside of this. Right. So I, I'm situated inside of this system also. Right. And I do think, um, having critique and like grappling with those questions, right. When we're faced with those choices, um, feels really, really important, especially in a moment, right, where, of course, capitalism has expanded the pizza pie and um, income income and wealth inequality has never been greater. That's true. Well, let's call that out for a minute. So I read a statistic, um, uh, and this specifically addresses the divide between white Americans and mm-hmm and black Americans, Mm -hmm. um, that the median net worth of the average white family is $170,000. And the median average net worth of the average black family is $17,000. So we're talking about a 10x. um, An enormous uh, gulf. An enormous chasm there. In fact, I, I believe the Atlantic, I read this in the Atlantic, but I believe it was the Boston Globe, um, study that analyzed the average net worth of the non-immigrant black family in Boston and the average net worth in Boston, which is a pretty affluent city, $8. $8. Well, and you can, you can basically... I mean, that's not a typo. That's not a verbal typo. And that's right. Yeah. It's ridiculous, right? Well, it's like, the, you know, the, the fact that... Um, the, the minimum wage in the United States is still $7.25, right? Also feels like a typo, yeah. <laughs> not a typo. Um, but, but you can assume that divide, that gap also when you think about um, uh, um, maternal mortality, when you think about property ownership, when you think about education gaps and, and um, who gets suspended, when you think about incarceration, obviously there's an enormous racial gap. When you think about life expectancy um, and health, right? Um, um, so, so, right, yeah. so it's not limited, right, to wealth and, and income and, and economics, right? Um, these gaps are, 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 are literally impacting people's health and well-being on every level. Yes. So let's specifically focus there for a moment on health mm-hmm. because that's yeah. central to what yeah. we do and what we talk yeah. about all the time. Um, so over the last uh, number of years, the average life expectancy mm-hmm. for particularly for black males, I, I believe last year, mm-hmm. went down two or three years. Because of COVID. COVID was a big mm-hmm. piece of it, mm-hmm. um, but also related to it just cresting levels of another epidemic of essentially chronic disease. Mm -hmm. So I believe Mm -hmm. over 50% of black males in the United States have some form of cardiovascular Mm -hmm. disease. Um, That the, um, obviously when you're looking at like diabetes and to some degree obesity, which is concomitant, not all the time, but sometimes with diabetes, um, you're looking at rates amongst black women in the mid 80 percentile. I mean, that's not, a, again, not a typo. And so um, now, of course, this is also part of a general trend that doesn't, that is disproportionate in particularly disadvantaged neighborhood or, or communities. Mm-hmm. But this is a general trend mm-hmm. too, 
is that we have a chronic disease epidemic mm-hmm. yeah. in our country, just mm-hmm. period. Yeah. But of course, you know, you can, you can, you can quite easily begin to understand and uh, deconstruct the ground conditions for why this exists in particular communities. Um, so, okay, you know, for generations, um, African Americans in this country were unable to generate um, intergenerational wealth because most inter- most wealth is actually held in property equity. Mm-hmm. So about two-thirds of people's mm-hmm. overall wealth mm-hmm. is, is in property equity. Well, if you redlining. lived in a red line district, that's right. you didn't get a loan. That's right. Um, banks would not underwrite uh, real estate. And so, you know, for generations over generations, there was no ability to generate that kind of that's right. um, wealth. And so, well, what does that mean? So that means you're in a, a rental situation where you're month to month, you're in a multi-generational you're house. You're vulnerable to eviction. All of these, mm-hmm. you're in most likely a, a, a lot of high density neighbor or mm-hmm. high density population neighborhoods. Um, which More are, vulnerable to environmental degradation. Yeah, all of these issues. Less resource. Less resource, less access to health care. And because education and, and public schools are tied to property value, right, you can assume then they're, the schools in that neighborhood are not well resourced. So you've got that. Those are the ground Entrenched. conditions. Mm-hmm. And then what do you eat? Well, yeah. <laughs> what is available right. for you to put in your, in your body and essentially metabolize That's right. food to create energy? So most in most of these neighborhoods, in urban, dense urban neighborhoods, and in rural neighborhoods too, um, you know what you get are what we know as food deserts, mm-hmm. where it's essentially you are you can only avail yourself of convenience store food, processed food, refined sugars, refined grains, and we know what the downstream impacts are, are mm-hmm. of that kind of diet. Mm-hmm. It's chronic disease. Mm-hmm. It's dysbiosis of the gut. It's mm-hmm. chronic inflammation. It's diabetes. It's neurodegenerative disease. It's cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. It's cancer. Mm-hmm. So I'm also thinking about the other thing we know about that particular dynamic is that on the other side, right, it's not just, it's not just ground conditions. It's actually structural and that's right. systemic conditions, right? Because when I think about the motivations of big ag and big sugar, right? Like th- this is, you know, and I talk about this in the book, right? So what you're naming are like the social determinants of health, right? That yeah. like um, um, being healthy is is not like what you do, it's where you live, right? It's your zip code often. And structural violence, which is a term Paul Farmer, who just passed, um, uh, talked a lot about is, is really... Um, um, the gaps that you're naming by design, like with intention, right? Big corporations keeping people addicted, keeping people um, um, hooked on really unhealthy food, right? Um, health healthcare insurance companies keeping people sick, right? Like so that there's that piece too, right? That it's not just by accident conditions or this is just the way it is, but that there are forces. Yes. Well, for example, the constellation between big food pharma and that's right the government to some degree where these corporations are so powerful and have such well-funded lobby that they can go and essentially demand um, subsidies for monocropping that essentially allows big food to to produce 
processed food below the true cost of production mm -hmm. and then turn around and market it for super cheap mm -hmm. in disadvantaged neighborhoods mm -hmm. with the messaging that like all calories are created equal or, you know, you just have to watch your diet, you know, and get enough exercise and you'll be good, you know, essentially shifting responsibility onto the individual yes. while they try to essentially poison them. Yes. And <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. They say they say that if you're sick or if you're um, suffering, it's your fault. Right. Right. When in fact, it's a setup. It's a setup. And then on the flip side, then you get sick. And then what do you got? What do you got? Well, maybe you're on Medicaid, right? A lot of people now fall within this little gap mm -hmm. where Between they make- Between healthcare and Medicaid. Yeah, where they make a little too much money. That's right. Not any money to live any sort of uh, flourishing, thriving life, but not, but you don't qualify for Medicaid. So, but but you don't have healthcare through your, through your employment. Um, and so you're in there. So I, I believe like last time I read, there's, you know, a good 12 or 13% of people uninsured kind of um, particularly stuck in, stuck stuck in, in that, that kind of gap. Yeah. So, but even if you do have some form of health insurance, so what are you getting there? Mm -hmm. Where you're getting sick care, mm -hmm. symptom care. That's right. So, and, and you, you know, you talk about this in That's the book right. and I was actually really impressed. <laughs> it was like a whole nother topic that you excavated, but it's so central because if we we're going to talk about inequities as it pertains to health and well-being, it's it's almost impossible not to talk about the that. history of that. Yes. Yeah. So then, what do you get? Well, you get a entire population addicted to a statin or to mm -hmm. metformin mm -hmm. or to you know uh, insulin. So and an entire industry benefiting from it, yeah. profiting off of it, right? Um, and so you have these big industrial complexes, yeah. <laughs> whether it's food or medical or prison, right, who are um, um, who are ensuring, right, that these systems keep going so that they can continue to profit, right? Profit off of our, you know, incarceration, profit off of our sickness, right? Profit off of, you know, and wellness is one of them, mm. right? Like a lot of what you're naming is is. Are, are messages that I heard in wellness, right? Eat this and you will be healthy. Read this and you will be enlightened. You know, do this and, you know, you will manifest, you know, your, your best your best life. And, um, and, and I'm not saying wellness is special. I'm just saying it's just, it's a part of the same dominant system. It's a part of the same dominant structure um, that benefits from our seeking. That's right. Well, as people discuss, Covered the benefits of it, of the underlying modalities like you, capitalism came in and right. swooped in and essentially like co-opted it and and, and, and continue to coerce us, right? Yeah. So you want but, more, more of this. That's not enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. Buy and, more, drink more, eat more. Right. And here's an image of perfection that you'll That's never right. live up to. And at the same time, I think it's important not to shame people for self-care. No. Um, well, and just to be clear, self-care is a concept that um, came out of the black feminist movement. Hmm. How's that? Um, well, it's it's part of a very famous Audre Lorde quote. Okay, right. Right? Um, um, and it was intended, and I write about this in the book, right? The origins of that term was intended 
um, for folks who are in the movement, right, black feminists in particular, right, right um, to to take care of themselves, right, so that they could keep going. And and so I, I say that because even the idea of self-care has been co-opted and commodified yeah. Yeah. by like a dominant wellness culture. And absolutely, I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about before about the contradiction of mutuality. You know, it's not self-care versus collective care. It's self-care as a part of collective care. It's the ways in which we need to tend to ourselves to make sure we have what we need and to make sure that we can be our whole fully expressed, you know, um, um, well selves so that we can show up for the collective well-being of all people. Yeah. And it's just like we keep getting caught in the binary of like, this is bad and this is good. Um, but it's also the way in which dominant culture centers a, a particular one particular um, aspect of a much broader uh, concept that has a specific historical origin um, and, and makes it, you know, and isolates it as if it's separate um, or a thing to be sold or consumed outside of the context, right? But self-care mm -hmm. is really about how we take care of ourselves as a part of the whole. Mm. Yeah. Right? So that we can show up for the whole. Yeah. You know, I remember being commiserating with you in the Wanderlust days mm -hmm. um, when we were trying to, um, you know, put our political chocolate into people's yoga peanut butter um, and, uh, and we were drugging them. Yeah. In the early <laughs> days, there was like, you know, no, keep your, uh, you yeah. know, your political chocolate out of my sacred, my sacred peanut butter space. Um, I'm going to drop that. I know it's metaphor. a great analogy. Um, uh, but, and we would be very frustrated with that because, mm -hmm. you know, well, can't you see that, you know, if you really do believe in yoga, then you know that our liberation is bound or our wellness is bound. Mm -hmm that I can't be well in this, you're well. So right. don't, don't you get that? Um, and so I, I remember being very frustrated for many years about that. And then, you know, after 2016 and Trump, I felt that there was like a slight, um, you know, melting of that fjord-ish ish, uh, for a moment, you know. Um, but I think that there's a temptation to say, and, I, and you, you write this in the book, and there was a couple of times when you wrote it, and I was like, hmm, I, mean, I want to mm -hmm. probe her on this a little bit, where like no amount of meditation mm -hmm. is going to be able to mm -hmm. address racial inequality. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I get, I get it. I, I think, I mean, I'll let you have yeah. your say on it and your and and give you the floor on it. But also, when I think about the true objective of med of meditation to the degree that there is one because <laughs> part of the goal of meditation is just to be here right mm -hmm. now and, and not mm -hmm. to have a goal mm -hmm. but let's say that for the sake of this particular conversation we can say that samadhi is the goal is mm -hmm. that a true acknowledgement or a sensation of integrated consciousness that there is no difference of the what it's like to be me and the experience of what it's like to be you. That mm -hmm. we are truly interdependent and connected. And so when I think of like a billion people meditating, I do think that that would have an incredibly profitable impact on our ability to disassemble systems of inequality or of inequity. So. And I also get it that, yeah, going into your little sacred space, you know, up on the hill and just focusing on your own well-being 
um, is not going to bend the arc mm -hmm. of history. So, you know, again, mm -hmm. that's a, there's a tension there, right? Totally. Yeah. I feel like, you know, a lot of what I leaned into, um, in this book and I have a lot of like zingers like that, yeah. um, to get people's attention, <laughs> um, yeah. um, it is because of the context that we live in, right? It's not an absolute, right? And so I meditate every day. I do yoga every day because it, it is actually, I believe, a tool, right? It's how I build capacity hmm. to stay in the conversation, to lean into conflict, to take risks, right? For the well-being of everyone, you know, political risks, um, spiritual risks, relational risks. Um, and so there's a place for those practices in our individual and collective transformation. And I think it's important to acknowledge that the dominant narrative, the dominant culture, and by dominant, I mean the culture that, uh, um, that we default to when we're not paying attention, the culture that has been entrenched um, and indoctrinated into like almost every aspect of our lives. And I'm talking about like the culture of individualism, right? The, the myth of separation that we talked about, right? right. Hyper-independence and the self-made man, right? Yeah. Um, and the fact that we don't need help and to, to ask for help is a weakness and perfectionism and, um, and, and supremacy, right? The idea that some people are more valuable and deserving than others, right? That's real, right? That's a real part of our history. And it's because of all the reasons you just named when you named all of the racial gaps, yeah. right? It's a real part of our present because of the, the dominant narrative and the dominant culture, right? Um, uh, that I, I believe overrides most things right now. It does feel important, right? To, to call out um, the ways in which some of these practices have been so hyper-individualized mm -hmm. that they've been almost weaponized to encourage us to look away and to turn and to turn inward, uh, to uh, to escape the discomfort and the reality, right, of our our current situation. Um, 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 even the idea that, like, if you just take care of yourself, then that's your, you know, yeah. contribution to the world. Like, we know there are a lot of people taking care of themselves right now, and it's not getting us very far. And so, I just want to name that 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 mm -hmm. I did that very intentionally, right? Because it's there's no neutral culture that allows for us to be like meditation is great, and so is political action, right? There's actually a very clear dominant message that we're getting from every direction, including within wellness that predisposes us to do a particular thing yeah, and not, I believe the thing that we need right now. Yeah. So I'll just say that when I meditate, mm -hmm. uh, and I have a clunky little practice, but when I do meditate, I tend to bring my best self into the world, mm -hmm. you know, just as a human being in general, how I show up in my community and how I show up as a parent and a, and a husband and as a colleague on my team. So I do think that there's knock on benefits. Yeah outside of just my own, um, uh, my own ability to handle adversity, et cetera, and to find peace and serenity and anxiety relief. Um, but I also feel that in our attempt to kind of demystify a lot of these modalities, we then group them into, um, like a, a bullet pointed list of, mm -hmm. uh, of, of associated benefits, mm -hmm. like, optimal performance. <laughs> like if you meditate, you're going to optimally perform. You're going to get ahead. Mm -hmm. You're going to be a better football player, a better basketball player, a better Marine. Now, I mean, of course, now they're, they're, you know, putting fMRIs on, uh, you know, 
um, on Marines and Navy SEALs, et cetera, uh, to, to look at brain patterns and, and bringing in monks, you know, to train so our fighters. Cool. So it's cool. And, you know, we, in our demystification of a lot of these modalities, we're using them for purposes that fit the capitalistic narrative of like, okay, getting ahead, you know, um, being more productive, mm -hmm. all of these things mm -hmm. instead of, okay, no, actually this was a modality that was generated to, um, with the primary goal of the realization of the non-self and feeling connected totally. to everybody. So in our efforts to spread a lot of these modalities and demystify them, we've lost the mystical component of them, which I think is, is fairly central when, when we began to talk about, um, uh, notions of, of equality or, or how we interact as human beings. Um, I also think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, we're not starting from zero. And so, um, right. So we've inherited this sort of deeply unjust and unequal <laughs> history and present time, right. That has pervaded all aspects of our lives. And so, and so I think that also deserves um, it feels like the practice of discernment, right? Like it deserves attention. It deserves right action and right choice hmm. in the ways in which we do our part to correct those systems and structures. And, and I don't know if, so I agree with you, med, you know, meditation, more people meditating and doing yoga is a really good thing. Even, even in its demystified state, I just want to say that, like, I'm yeah. all for that. I have a friend who's like a hardcore movement builder and organizer, a mentor to me who um, is suffering from cancer and was telling me recently, you know, she, she read my book and she said, you know, I just want to tell you that I've been going to like my gym yoga and they say like no Sanskrit and there's nothing spiritual in there. And she goes, just being in my body and breathing has had the most profound impact on my health. So I just want to say, I think that's real, right? That was what happened to yeah. me. I, I got like woke in a Bikram class, you know what I mean? Like in a really hot, sweaty, you know, kind of stripped bare yoga class. And I also think that because of the the conditions of our reality right now, it does call us, right, to, to take our meditation off the cushion. Yes. It does call us to, to show up in very specific, strategic, um, collective ways if, in fact, we want to alter the course of our future. And so that's, mm. I think, what I mean is that, you know, meditating on our cushion is not going to undo okay. that, that accumulative and aggregate harm that, that you know, um, yeah, it's where the meditation then punctuates the 100%. rest of your life. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's the, the impetus, right, through which yeah. then you can actually take right, skillful, intentional, compassionate action out in the world, right? This is why engaged Buddhism is so powerful, right? right. And and, and right. even all of the yoga activism, I mean, you and I have been in these, these conversations for a really long time. And so it's not an either or, just to be clear. And, you know... And it's, I do think there's a danger in saying, just meditate, right? Meditation is enough given the context, the right. leaning, right? The leaning context of the world that we live in, which will just point us right back to, you know. Right. So the Eightfold Noble Path is not a linear one. That's and right. it's filled with right action, right livelihood, right speech, et cetera, right understanding. Right. Um, and, uh, and yes, and meditation but not in any one particular order That's with right. not necessarily one particular terminus. That's right. So 
Um, and there's and, not one right action, right? Different people get to show up in different ways based on our social location, based on our abilities, you know? So, yeah. so that part too, right? There's, th this is not a like a uh, prescription for like, there's one right way to get free and well, here it is, right? It's actually holding the, the messy, complex reality that like there are many, there's an ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm of engaged mindfulness. And there are many different ways that we all get to show up together. Yeah. So I want to talk about how you're showing up mm -hmm. and how you're navigating that mm -hmm. because kind of post George Floyd, mm -hmm. there was a lot of societal pressure mm -hmm. to amplify black voices and black and brown voices and to decenter mm -hmm. oneself if one was mm -hmm. in the dominant culture, let's mm -hmm. say. Um, but of course you're an author and mm -hmm. you're writing a book totally. and you put yourself in the book as part of, as a personal narrative, your personal narrative is in the book. And I'm glad that it is because it honestly mm -hmm. drew me into the narrative of the book. And it wasn't just a dissertation as, as you mm -hmm. said, before we started recording. So I'm wondering how do you navigate mm -hmm. that piece of like who gets to talk, who gets mm -hmm. to speak, who gets to mm -hmm. act in this particular moment. Mm -hmm. It's a messy answer. And so so what you're naming is sort of my social location, which, you know, I'm a white, cis, um, heterosexual, able-bodied, you know, middle to upper class woman with so much, mm -hmm. right? So many points of privilege, so much proximity to power and decision making, especially in wellness, right? In the context of wellness, a lot of people in wellness look like me. Right. I have able-bodied privilege. I have thin privilege. Right. Um, I, you know, I'm a woman, which is sort of like, I, I feel like, you know, there's so much gendering I'm straight. And so, um, becoming aware of that has been really important, um, for me, a, to not replicate, right. The very systems that got us here, but also so that I can, um, uh, become more skilled, right, and discerning in how I engage. And what I mean by that is like, what is my right role and responsibility? Not just given who I am, Carrie, and what I've lived through um, and what my purpose is in the world. I feel like that's often the orientation for a lot of people of like, I'm good at this and my purpose is that and I have a good intention and that's how I'm going to show up. But actually like reckoning with one's social location, right? Mm -hmm. And how many of us have benefited, right, from a lot of these um, really harmful systems and structures and how a lot of us have actually been gatekeepers inside of them. So to answer your question, um, it's really tricky, you know, like, so I'm thinking about um, um, what that means in my role um, in activism, right? Um, as someone who's really committed to social change, um, but also as someone who maybe doesn't quite understand the problems because I'm not directly impacted by many of them. Right. Right. So how that calls me to listen, right. When I'm doing solidarity work around racial justice or even income inequality or, um, LGBTQIA, right. You know, rights. Um, um, it, it's probably not appropriate or skillful or helpful for me to actually lead on those issues, but to listen, right. And to take the lead, right. From people who are most impacted by them and then to work from my positionality, right. Um, and, and leverage what I can to like have their back and support them in ways that they need and they ask for. Um, and yeah, in, in writing this book, and I even think in like the ways in which I'm committed to transforming wellness culture, um, and reimagining wellness culture, I really struggled, 
yeah. with centering myself. Cause I'm like, I've benefited from this culture and I'm also always centered in this culture. My body, my position, my, you know, has always been centered. I've always, you know, been featured. I've been in magazines. I've been on billboards. I've been ambassadors of different companies. I've had access to lots of practices and retail. I mean, all the things, festivals, yeah. right? Um, and so when thinking about, and I was, tr I tried to be really careful about this in the book, when thinking about the future of wellness, the reimagining of wellness, um, what's needed, right, for like collective and universal wellness that takes care of everyone, I don't know if I'm the right person hmm. to make that call. And I do believe that I have a role in exposing what's in the way. I have a role in disrupting the spaces that I have access to and the influencers and the decision makers and the leaders. I have a role in showing up in solidarity and redistributing resources and attention and focus to leaders and to wellness influencers who are on the front lines, who understand firsthand right, what it is to be impacted by these issues of inequality and injustice. So, I, so anyway, so yeah. I say that it's not a simple answer. It's a dance. And it's often a dance I do in relationship with other people, right? Because I know that different, not everyone agrees what my role is. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I think this is, um, first of all, I am, th I am a big supporter of you being a leader mm -hmm. in the best way that you possibly mm -hmm. can. And, um, you know, in thinking about this in anticipation of our conversation, you know, I started thinking about what is known as standpoint epistemology. So standpoint epistemology is essentially that the only person that can authentically speak on an issue is someone that has had the direct experience, life experience of that particular issue. So, you know, my metaphorical brain started kind of turning that mm -hmm. around. And I was like, okay, well, I think that I can make a statement that racism is a cancer. Okay, and I sat with that for a second. It's like, I think I can make that statement. So um, there are oncologists in the world mm -hmm. that have never had cancer, mm -hmm. but they have a certain expertise to speak about it. Mm -hmm. And I actually had cancer as a kid, mm -hmm. but I am not an oncologist. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily feel like I'm in an expert role there, though I interview a lot of doctors mm -hmm. and I have talked about it here and there. But I did study race relations at Columbia University. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that as a product of my own direct experience, I have suffered much discrimination, but I do have tremendous amount of pedagogy around a particular issue. And I, I, I worry that if we say, well, you've never uh, had that particular direct experience, so you are unqualified to speak about it, that that marginalizes people and takes a lot of very important expert opinions and voices out of the game. And so I'm, you know, I'm wrestling with this honestly mm -hmm. a bit um, because you know, this comes up as part of mm -hmm. um, critical race theory, and or wokeism or um uh, well especially in social media yeah so and obviously i mean we can we can pull on critical race theory for a second because it's obviously 
just a ridiculous boogeyman for something that almost doesn't really exist on some level. Obviously, it was, yeah, a, yeah. It was a legal theory and yes. it has many different components to yes. it that are fascinating. But as it pertains to how it's being used and leveraged by Chris Rufo and, and then now the entire Republican and Party 100%. and weaponized at like school board level, you know, no, you know, little white Johnny in rural Virginia is not being, uh, you know, taught that he's a racist no. by his teacher. I mean, all that stuff is just straight smoke no. and mirrors. Yeah. Okay. So, no, but books are being banned. But books are being and banned. And history for sure. is literally being rewritten. Right. So, so there is a parallel, right? Like they're creating a boogeyman and saying, don't look over here, look over here. And because over here, what they are doing, right, is they're rewriting history and they're banning books. Right. So I just want to name that too, that it's not, it's not just a boogeyman. It's also a deflection and a distraction. Yeah. And it's, you know, being used to galvanize, um, you Completely. know, a certain voting block. And here we are, uh, how many months away, five months away from midterms and, you know, to be honest, it looks a little bleak. Yep. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, so, you know, there's there's this kind of more like boogeyman side of critical race theory. But then there's this this other um, component to kind of social life and 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 life, you know, particularly on the left that I think that is dangerous. It's it, it, and one of it, you know, I, I do worry about that idea of standpoint epistemology i you know i do mm -hmm. worry yeah a, a little bit about the kind of over sanctification of story over empirical fact you know i do worry about some mm -hmm. of those things that mm -hmm. get leveraged um very powerfully mm -hmm. by the right. Well, and it's not always absolute because, you know, when I think about in the case of trauma, sometimes trauma victims are not the right people, right? To be, yeah. They're not in a, in a position, right, right. Um, to speak on their own behalf, right? So, so I don't, and, and this just goes back to there are no absolutes. And I just yeah. want to be clear, that's not the message I'm getting from the people I work with. I'm not getting the message like back up, sit down, quiet, you know, right. pipe down, carry, um, you know, what, what I'm getting because I'm in relationship with people in the movement, um, is an invitation to be skillful and discerning about when I step forward, hmm. right. When I center my experience, right. When I speak with authority and expertise and when it's not my place. Right. And I think some of the challenge is that sometimes, especially I'm just thinking about in academia, right. When we have the the aura of expertise and authority, you know, um, we, for, you know, we lose that, that, that practice of discernment. Right. And yeah. so, so that, you know, and I think that does actually apply to doctors, right? I think, you know, there's a lot of people, um, challenging a medical industry yeah. that doesn't allow patients to speak for themselves, that actually doesn't believe patients when they say this is happening to me. So anyway, so I just, this to me goes back to relationality and interdependence. And for me, how I show up in the movement, how I show up in relationships, especially around issues that I'm not directly impacted by, although I do believe I am, I am impacted.
right? Just disproportionately, right? I think we all are impacted and harmed by white supremacy, but disproportionately. Um, um, is that, you know, the way that I understand leader is someone who actually understands when to step forward and when to step back, when to speak up and when to listen, right? And that's the thing I feel like I grappled with in writing the book. And that's the, you know, that's what I grapple with all the time, right? Is like, you know, what, what is a, how do I, how do I step, step in here skillfully, right? And, and what does leadership look like in this particular moment, given my social location? But I'm a hundred percent with you. I mean, the reason when I got scared writing this book and I had many moments of being like, I'm going to get my ass kicked. Like I say a lot of things in this book and I'm, and the other thing I think we have to remember is that people are not a monolith. So some people might yeah. be like, Carrie, right on. And other might, people might be like, who, who the fuck do you think you are? How dare you right, yeah. write about this? And so I have to hold that, that too, right? That people are going to disagree. And the reason I kept going is because the stakes are just too high, quite frankly, for me to play it safe and for me to hide and for yeah. me to play small. And so that's why I threw my guts off a cliff <laughs> because I was yeah. like, we're staring down like a, a, like really dark times and we all actually have to rise to the occasion and take some really big risks right now. Mm -hmm. And this is mine. And you know what? That means if I make a mistake, I'm gonna have to be accountable for it. Yeah. I wanna ask you about privilege for a mm -hmm. moment um, because this is a concept and a word that I feel is making a lot of people bristle right now mm -hmm. um, because I, uh, I think it often does get leveraged in this binary mm -hmm. kind of way mm -hmm. where you're either privileged mm -hmm. or you're not. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I see it you know, levied against people, um, in my mind, somewhat unfairly mm -hmm. because uh, we don't know what Mm -hmm. that person's life was mm -hmm. like. And, you know, we tend to, when we look kind of through the lens of kind of intersectionality and, okay, it's a white cis mm -hmm. man, mm -hmm. we tend to be like, okay, well, we're going to file you mm -hmm. in the privileged uh, category mm -hmm. box. And, and I, I, I get it, you know. And I also think there is that privilege, at least in my opinion, needs to exist across a spectrum mm -hmm. where I don't know who's been abused, neglected, mm -hmm. raped, mm -hmm. like all of these, you know, the hundreds of things that could impact what it is like to be someone mm -hmm. outside of sexual orientation, mm -hmm. gender, and mm -hmm. race. So I wonder, mm -hmm. you know, and you use the word, I think, social location, which in mm -hmm. a way is honestly a much more nuanced yeah. way. And, and in the book, you know, you have like a little uh, wheel that yeah. you, you use. And, you know, obviously you have to make it work in a graphic in a book. Yeah. <laughs> um, Awkward. Uh, but I wonder if you can just, you know, pull on this notion of privilege and where it is important for one to do an inventory and identify one's own privilege and where it's also important for to have a little grace around people and whether or not they would be in the privileged category or not. Mm -hmm. 
Well, so the definition of privilege is advantage, right? It just means that you've had a leg up in the world because not because of who you are or because of even personal things that have happened to you, but because of where you're so you're situated in social systems, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in the hierarchy of bodies, right? Which is very real in our country and around the world in different ways. Um, and so I say that because I, because I do think people personalize privilege and I, and it's not personal. <laughs> I mean, it is personal and it's not personal, right? Yeah. Um, and so the way that I understand privilege for myself is that I've had, I, I've just been more proximal to access, to agency, to influence, to being a gatekeeper and being able to make decisions on that affect other people, uh, to money, you know. Um, and there's lots of different points of privilege to your point, right? Um, and I think actually one of the um, one of the traps right now is that uh, we're not um, we're not talking about this from an intersectional place, right? So often we 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 uncouple racial privilege from economic privilege, from gender privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Which actually allows us to weaponize those things against one another, when in fact they're very much compounded. That's the definition of intersectionality, as it was intended. And yeah. so I do think it's important for us to take inventory to the best of our ability of all of the ways in which we've been shaped by uh, dominant culture and society and systems um, and um, and the value that's been placed, right, on our social group memberships, right? And that feels important because I think sometimes, you know, our egos get tripped up because we think that it's like a judgment call on who we are, right. but it's actually just how society values you. <laughs> it's not whether or not you're good or bad, right? It's not whether you've been a good person or taken advantage of, or it's just like society values different people, different bodies, different social group memberships in different ways. And so that feels really important because it depersonalizes a bit um, um, the inquiry around yeah. privilege. Um, and the other thing that I think is important when we think about privilege is that privilege isn't, doesn't work in isolation. It's in relationship with oppression, right? Because privilege isn't just this cool thing that you have. It's often backed by social and institutional power. And this is what makes priv this conversation about social location, I think, different from things that have happened to us, like mm. individual events or personal right. traumas, because those aren't always backed and reinforced and systematized, right, by social and institutional power. So I think about whiteness, for example, right? My white privilege is um, celebrated, rewarded, reinforced, centered, right, universalized, um, um, comforted, right, protected by many systems and structures and have been for a really long time, right? And so it's not as simple as me just changing my mind. That's why it's like, it's both like political and it's personal because yeah. we, we can't just change our minds and, and you know, and, um, you know, betray whiteness, right, on a spiritual level, we then have to go and like detox and dismantle the systems that have been shaped, right, to reward and celebrate and center whiteness. Um, and the last thing that I'll just say about privilege is that I struggle with it because I know it's a word that's accessible for people right now. So it's like sort of in the zeitgeist, I think is actually something that's like, like people are like grappling with privilege um, 
maybe first along their journey before they get to like a grappling with the system and the culture of white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. And the ways in which, and the history, right? So I do think it's sort of like a point of entry for a lot of people. And I think it's really tricky because I think it has this connotation of better. Yeah. And I think that, you know, and one of the things I really grapple with in this book is that there is also a cost. And there are people in my life, black women who are like, I don't want that privilege. Y'all have lost your soul to white supremacy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want that. That it's not, a, I don't want your privileges, right? I want a different world. I want a different culture, right? I want systems that celebrate all of our bodies and take care of all of us, right? So I think that's why I struggle with this idea of like pay your privilege forward because it's like a lot of people don't want our privilege. They want an entirely different uh, condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... In the summer of 2020, um, I was publishing a lot mm -hmm. of um, articles just about all the things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just because the size of our email list is significant, um, if you're going to write 2,000 words, you're going to step in some bucket of shit somewhere. That's right. Um, and you're finding that out right now. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and people would, you know, email me because I would attach my personal email um, to those articles that I was writing. And, you know, most people, you know, the ego loves a tiny bit of adulation. So that was nice mm -hmm. to get some of that. But there was quite a few people that would take issue with one thing or mm -hmm. another that I would write. Mm -hmm. And um, and on all sides of the political spectrum. But I was particularly interested in the, um, in conservative Republicans that would write in thoughtfully Mm -hmm. with some form of critique. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I should talk to these people. So I started suggesting to people that would write in that we would have Zoom calls. And so for the summer of uh, 2020, I would apportion part of my Monday and Tuesday afternoon to having Zoom calls with people that didn't agree with me on some issue or another. And I became sort of a Zoom pen pal, if you will, with this woman named Sue, who is from Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. It's mm -hmm. a very rural yeah. place. And she's a single mom, white, uh, in her 30s, I think, um, working two part-time jobs. Mm -hmm. One, I think, at like a Home Depot and some of her. Mm -hmm. um, bought all of her food at the local 7-Eleven mm -hmm. because her town was essentially boarded up. And had half a dozen friends who had died from opioid overdoses. Um, and she was an avid uh, Trump supporter. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, Carrie, she doesn't feel one speck on a pinhead of privilege. Mm -hmm. And not only does she not feel any privilege, but she felt very resentful of people's judgment of her of the moral indignation on the left of her as somehow racist uh, and unable to acknowledge her privilege. Mm -hmm. And this really fueled her fervor mm -hmm. for Trump and right-wing politics, et cetera. And, and I, I also guarantee that she felt no connection or sense of guilt for what her grandfather or great-grandfather might have or might have not done. Mm -hmm. And so, 
And, you know, to be honest, I give her a lot of credit because, you know, I was sort of in the position of power, uh, sort of in mm -hmm. our conversation, but it, it went offline. But, you know, but she was willing to engage with me, you know, back and forth over more, m most of the summer. And I'm still in touch with her here and there. And so what do you say to someone like Sue, <laughs> um, who clearly on some level, the, uh, you know, this um, need on the left for people to acknowledge their privilege, et cetera, um, is in some ways just fueling it kind of in a Newtonian physics kind of way. It's like one action begets a, a, another opposite equal reaction. Um, do you feel like the politics of the left are in some ways exacerbating the Susquehanna Sioux's of the world and entrenching them in Trumpistan. I feel like the politics of the wealthy are doing that, actually. I mean, what that reminds me of is, you know, um, often, uh, well, so, you know, I think a lot of the outrage, right, around white supremacy is coming from an acknowledgement um, um, that whiteness is real, right, and that Black and brown people are targeted um, and disadvantaged, right? Exploited often, um, excluded from spaces, oppressed systemically, and have been for a really long time in different ways, right? Depending on context and history. Um, and that um, we have to do something to reduce harm, right? To me, that's like a yogic stance, right? Like we have to do our part to reduce harm. And some of that inquiry is personal, which is I think where like the call for people like uh, uh, reckoning with their privilege comes from. Mm -hmm. And some of that is political, which is like, how are our systems racist? You know what I mean? How are our systems unfair and unjust racially? And I also think that a conversation can include how are our systems economically unjust? Yeah. And when I think about, and the reason I said, you know, um, you know, the boogeyman, the, 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 you know, the, um, CRT. Yeah. Uh, is the, is the wealthier, the people at top uh, is because I'm thinking just about, you know, the history of of the race construct in this this country and how it was literally invented to divide the working class. Right. Bacon's Rebellion is a seminal moment in our history when um, white and black workers um, united and built, you know, a coalition and organized to um, challenge um, the governors and, and the, the, the landowners and almost won and actually almost defeated them. And, um, and out of that emerged this idea of white privilege, of whiteness, like that word actually emerged during that time in the Virginia codes followed, hmm. right? Where um, people in power realized that they had to divide the working class or the working class would topple the elite. And so they gave white people a little bit of land, breadcrumbs, Literally, right? This is why, you know, poor white people in America, it's, it's a really hard conversation because they too are deeply oppressed right. and disadvantaged and held back in impossible ways by a deeply unequal system that privileges so few, right? 
but it's not the same racially, right? That's the nuance and the discernment that I would invite. It's not like, I'm like you, me too, I'm suffering. It's not, that's not enough, right? Like there's differences in how we're treated, right? Um, based on our skin color and based on our different racial identities. And I guess the thing that I, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a, an FDNY fireman, who's like a Trumper, dear friend of the family, has been since 9-11, right? So this is like my brother. And we were talking recently on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, real late at night. And, and he was saying, he was talking about how angry he is about billionaires, about people with extraordinary wealth, um, and about how much he's suffering, right? As someone who's a part of uh, uh, an institution that gi they give, they constantly sacrifice their lives for the well-being of the city, for the well-being of, of, you know, the United States. And, right, and is struggling and has three jobs, all the ands, right, um, that a lot of people I think are feeling. And I said to him, I said, I said, you know, I said, I don't, I don't think we're on opposite sides. Right. I was like, I don't, well, I said, we just have a different opinion about how to get there, you know? And he bought into the, 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 the myth of the American dream that someone like Trump who had inherited wealth, right. Could climb the ladder and be, and, and make it all the way to the top, all the way to the white house. Right. Um, and that he's a beacon of hope, right. For so many, you know, poor white Americans, when we know, in fact, that is not his history. And that, that was not the context through which he came into wealth and power, and like that is the the method through which some folks in this country um, think that we're going to get free and that life can get better, right? And then there are the rest of us who are like, you know what, y'all, let's just get organized on the ground, right? Like if we actually organize workers, if we organize people against the very few people that are in control of these systems and that continue to benefit from them, then we actually might have a shot at reimagining them. Hmm. Yeah. So three people in the United States now own yeah, more part. collective wealth than the bottom 50% combined. And there's a lot of shared anger around that particular issue across That's right. every aisle. That's right. So that was a place of agreement that I always came back to yeah. when Sue was basically like, ah, screw you. I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm like, but... Yeah, yeah. Come on, this issue this I know that we agree on. And, you know, this is a little Sam Harrisy, but, you know, he makes this argument to essentially reframe, you know, racial justice as class justice. And if you want to create like a real broader coalition around it, you know, and this again is just the message. This is marketing, really, more than anything else, is that you know, change the message, you know, get away from abolish the police, defund the police, et cetera, and make this a class issue and, you know, and rectify the fact that we have an absolutely odious uh, level of income inequality mm -hmm. in the United States. And that you could build real, real coalition around that where nobody feels shamed, nobody feels on the outside of that. Everyone could essentially get on board and you could build you know, real consensus. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. And I, I guess my counter would be like, it is a class issue. Race is a class issue. Race emerged out of racial capitalism, right? Like, so they are related. They're mm -hmm. deeply intertwined. 
And I, and I also don't think we need to erase race. I think to do that, and this is where our, our practice comes in, right, really beautifully, is that like our practice gives us the capacity to hold many complexities and many contradictions, right? And the messiness of, um, yeah, we can all be united on like, you know, class activism and, and movement building. And we're within class, right? There are many different lived experiences. I'm even thinking about like, you know, the disability community and all that they have done, right? For class politics, but they too are having a very different experience, right? And deserve to be at the table. And so I just, I feel like we are capable. So yeah, we could lower the bar, right? And adjust our marketing to, to appease the folks that are uncomfortable about the messiness of, of, of including race in that dialogue, or we can get better at actually holding both of them. And to your, and I agree with you. I don't think shame is a good, is a great motivator. It doesn't invite people into the conversation. Right. But I also think that we can be talking about the many different ways in which we're situated inside of these problems without having shame. I mean, I know for me, like I've been doing this work for two decades now, and I I can say that I talk about privilege now, right? I can I can I take inventory of like the many ways that I have benefited, the many ways I have been complicit and continue to be complicit, right? In ways that I'm unconscious of, right? Because of the power of dominant culture and socialization. And like I'm 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 building a capacity to do that without letting shame overcome me. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I also like I'm trying to build communities and containers and conversational um, uh, equity that allows us to actually have these conversations in different ways um, that let people be who they are and, and learn in public and make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't know that I agree that we should whitewash. OK, well, let me, let's have let's go there just for a minute, Okay, because you're here and. Mm-hmm. We get to have this beautiful, yeah. thorny, friendly conversation. So you're wearing a 1973 shirt. Yeah. It's not because you were born in 1973. No. It's because, it's because Roe was born in 1973. That's right. And we're and is just about to die. days away um, from its overturning. That's right. And, um, and really, that is a product of the fact that President 45 got to appoint three justices to the Supreme That's Court. Right. And we're kind of on the precipice of a potential second Trump presidency. Now, who knows? Years, two years away, who knows? But well, we it, every it doesn't have to be Trump. It can be DeSantis. That's true. It can be Hawley, which is worse. Right. But, arguably. Yeah. But essentially, um, someone that fits that mold. That's right. And, um, and you know, Roe is obviously front and center right now, but there's, you know, myriad related issues. Um, if Roe gets overturned. If Roe gets overturned. That's right. And also, you know, just our inability at this juncture to get, you know, anything done on climate change, you know, anything but like anything the done most on whitewashed thing on gun control yeah. or whatever. So, you know, I ask you just from a pure pragmatic, pure practical standpoint, is there an opportunity for the Democratic Party, let's just say, to instead of being a 49, 51% you know, split or 50, 50% split, to say, okay, listen, there are there is this Liz Cheney mm-hmm. um 
you know, diminishing but somewhat significant tranche of the Republican Party that doesn't believe in Pizzagate and the big lie and QAnon and all of the collective delusions and fever dreams of, of, of Trumplandia. Is there an opportunity to say like, okay, yeah, we're, we can live with language that says, you know, abortion is legal, safe, and rare. Or we can live with letting go of abolish the police. And we can live with letting go of some of that kind of messaging of what you might categorize as whitewashing in order to enlarge the tent to become a 60-40 majority <laughs> such that we can get some things done on climate change. And, and I don't know the answer. I'm just playing, mm-hmm. I, I, I guess, mm-hmm. devil's advocate here, because that is a conversation mm-hmm. that is happening out mm-hmm. there. And I want to see how you feel about it. I don't know that I believe that that would um, expand the tent. I don't know that moderate politics is actually going to expand the tent or engage more people. And in fact, we're seeing that most people who are energized, and I'm talking about the populace, are energized on the far right and the far left. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in the middle are just disinterested, quite frankly. That's the that's the biggest divide. That's one of my favorite statistics in the book is that is this thing that I found that, you know, the the the, the largest divide politically is not between the right and the left, it's between those who are engaged and those who are disengaged. And the number was 80% consider themselves disinterested in politics. Mm. We have a deeply apathetic um c- citizenry. Um and we could debate about why that is too. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't think I'm convinced. I mean, when you look at the ways in which um, this uh, congressional body is voting, it is not moderate. Moderate is not winning. Moderate is even passing, right? So I, I, I don't know that that strategy is actually going to get us where we need to go. I actually think the strategy that will help us is actually to restore and protect democratic structures, to, to make sure that voting rights is actually protected so that more people can vote. Um, and not, you know, be shut out of the vote. I think that, um, uh, you know, um, regulating gerrymandering, um, um, limiting money in politics, like those are the things I think that are pulling us further and further and further away from any progress. And we're very close to shutting down our democratic institution because of those structures. And the filibuster obviously is one of them. And so I'm just not sure that like, rebranding, <laughs> you know what I mean? Some of these issues, I mean, because take gun control, for example, you know, like 80% of America wants g- gun regulation and and yeah. and Congress still won't act, right? And so I, I just feel like the power is with the people, it's with voters, and we have to do everything we can to turn people out and to make, make sure people have the right to vote and that elections are protected and not stolen from, you know, the folks who are claiming they're, it's being stolen from. And, and that's actually the way to, to actually best reflect um, the law of the land as it is, you know, determined by the people. Mm-hmm. So, because essentially what we have right now, given a lot of our governmental structures and how they're set up, is a quasi-tyranny of the minority. Completely. Um, a total stalemate. Yeah. So there's an overrepresentation in our governing bodies of a particular minority. Mm-hmm. Um, Which in, we can also trace back to the Electoral College. Right. Yeah. Well, 
Absolutely. Well, and 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 just the way systems of representation That's right. are generated, particularly in the Senate, where I think, you know, there's even in a 50-50 Senate, and I could be wrong about the exact number, but the Democrats represent, I think, 40 million more That's people. That's right. That's exactly right. So, so it's so it's not a representative democracy even now, and the and the way things are going is it's begin, it's the structure right, um the conditions of our democracy are eroding further and further and further and if and if we stay <laughs> yeah. on this path right they're going to be completely shut down. Right. Well, polarization in this particular case as it relates to the structures of our government actually benefits the right because of how the Senate is functioning. So I think, you know, this was a statistic that I've read where I think 30 or 40 years ago, this is in a Brene Brown book, um, 25% of us lived in a landslide district, essentially mm -hmm. a district where one party or the other ran away with the election. And now we're talking about 80%, 85% of us live in a landslide district. So incumbents just sort of almost get rubber stamped mm -hmm. back in, back mm -hmm. in, Except basically just the way that the United States is set up, you know, a lot of Democrats live in New York and Illinois and California. And so, and Republicans are much more spread out in the in the more, in rural, rural. states. Mm -hmm. And there are just more of them. So essentially that's going to mm -hmm. inherently benefit mm -hmm. Republican representation in the Senate. Mm -hmm. Well, and, so, and we're also not talking about local politics, right? Republicans and conservatives have been, um, you know, rigorous for many, many decades in securing local political power yes. um, at the state level, at, the, you know, um, the state legislature level, at the district attorney level. And we're now seeing the consequences of that on the left, right? right. The left has lost so much ground. We've been preoccupied with national races. And so, so that too feels like a strategic imperative that we actually redirect a lot of our attention and resources to local races and make up some ground as fast as we can. Yeah. So your belief is it's not about as much about rebranding. It's more about galvanizing. Yeah, and there's some amazing people out there actually that um, are are doing a ton of research about what are the what is the framing and the storytelling, right? And what are the narratives that that transcend the divisions, right? That actually capture the the deep yearning that people mm. have, right? Um, 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 Anat Schenker Asorio is one of them, um, but like amazing people are actually working on sort of like narrative growth right, and narrative efficacy. So to your point, we can tell a more inclusive story, but it, but one that doesn't exclude, right, or lim or eliminate the very real lived experiences of people who are often most impacted, right, right. by these systems and structures. Um, and I think we get caught up in like the narrative and marketing work and we forget that we have to organize. Right. Okay. On the ground. And other things that you're doing, like having conversations on Zoom, like talking to people one-on-one, -on -one, um, having house parties. Um, that, 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 that's like some real like gritty and, um, uh, and, you know, generative space for us to play in. Talking in our yoga studios, right? Talking, you know, like having, even having conversations on social media. Like some mm -hmm. people, you know, really get valuable experiences on social media. And that's a place where they can gather and organize and, and feel seen and feel safe. Um, so I just feel like, you know, taking it out of sort of that like meta land and even like the cerebral mm. conceptual and getting in relationship with people and, and pulling together small circles and having house parties and, and just getting like real with one another. 
yeah. in relationship, in conversation, in conflict, in disagreement. Like that to me is where there's a ton of possibility. And that's happening all over the place. I mean, people ask me, the question I get most often these days is like, do you feel despair or do you feel hope? Yeah. Fucking hate that question. And I'm sort of like, I feel them both always at the same time. Sure. I think the, a better question is, where do you feel hope? And I feel hope when I'm organizing. I feel hope when I'm in conversations with people, even if I'm in conversations with people across the aisle. Sure. I feel hope when I'm showing up on the front lines, when I volunteer to be a part of like a movement action. Um, I feel hope when I'm engaged in something bigger than myself. I feel really terrified when I feel alone and isolated. Hmm. Um, I think that's where a lot of people are. I would imagine, right? And so like when people are like, what do I do? Like how like, I say, you know, join an organization, connect with other people around an issue, host a small circle. You know what I mean? Even do a book club, right? And start to like learn about some of these issues, learn together, be in a culture and in a community of learning and growing together, you know? Um, um, you know, you know, get educated about issues that you're not aware of. Read, you know, it's like a million ways, right? I yeah. feel like people can engage. There's so many pathways and points of entry. So there's not one right way for, for any one person. But that's where I feel the most space hmm. and the most movement, <laughs> like forward movement. Um, of, often also I feel challenged in those spaces, but invigorated, yeah. you know. Yeah. So to bookend the, the conversation, I want to talk about reimagining wellness. Yeah. Because that's where you go. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> you know, my empirical mind when I ask myself that question, it goes very much like affordable housing policy, expanding 100%. access to health care, yes. uh, you know, a, a fair tax policy, uh, addressing income inequality. Like it goes very tactical. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Just that it includes those things feels like a deep reimagining of what we learn, right? And what we see in wellness, <laughs> I'm not right? sure we it's very see... imaginative though, from the reimagining perspective. I see what you're saying. But I, I don't know. So where do you land when you think about reimagining wellness? Well, I want to say that what you just named feels outside of the box in that, you know, people in yoga studios and meditation spaces aren't talking about a living wage. Hmm. They're not talking about universal housing and healthcare. Um, and so I do, right. We don't consider those wellness issues, right? We don't consider that the practice of wellness. So I actually think what you're naming, I know you would go there because you've been there all along with me, but like most people don't consider politics wellness. Right. And I think folks have to realize because of all the things that we talked about, because of the social determinants of health, right. The, the conditions that determine whether or not we survive or thrive, right? Because of the structures, right? And the culture that we have inherited from this history. Um, I do think we have to start to see wellness outside of the bubble. We have to start to see that these really core and critical social and economic issues are in fact wellness issues because none of us are gonna be well if we stay on this track. Mm. I don't care how tight your lotus pose is, you know? Um, so I do think that's part of it, right? And a lot of the people that I invited in, so the reimagining chapter in the book was me sort of getting out of the way and being like, I'm going to ask folks who are working at different intersections and who are doing wellness in ways that we often don't see, right, in Yoga Journal or that we don't see broadcast from big wellness companies. And um, 
And, and these are some of the things I did hear from them, right? Mm-hmm. Where they were like, like, we actually have to stretch our wellness practice yeah. to take responsibility, right, for the collective. Um, and so that those were some of the themes. I want, you know, some of the other things that I, I loved that came from this group was, um, was the idea, and, and we talked a lot about kind of the paradox already and holding contradiction, but the idea that um, um, there is no escape, right? So there's no purity in the reimagining of wellness. In fact, reimagining wellness demands that we hold the messy moment that we're in. And we hold the contradiction of like the absolute and the relative at the same time. Right. And I really appreciated that, that, that they named that. And one of the ways they talked about that was in how they talked about transition, right? That often when we talk about reimagining, we're thinking like destination, right? And, and like, what is the outcome and how do we, you know, catapult ourselves there and just avoid all of the muck that we're in right now. And they were saying, no, that's not possible, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're kind of in this sticky in-between between where we're coming from and where we're going. And what's important is how we walk through this transition, how we live through this transition. And some of what they said is that we need to ensure as we witness the collapsing of systems, right, and the emergence of alternatives, we have to make sure that this is that the transition is just. We have to make sure that um, in this transition we reduce suffering, especially for those who are most vulnerable, right, in the collapsing of systems. Um, we have to make sure that as we move through this transition, that it's joyful, also and playful, and expansive, and creative, and artistic. Um, so I loved that too, um, because I think, I think, I think that's one of the biggest questions folks have, but they don't have words around it. Like, how do we live through this moment? Yeah. Right. Like, how do we survive this particular messy moment? Um, and, and it's not about some utopia. It's about actually like, how do we take it step by step? Yeah. There's a great Malcolm X quote. Um, when I becomes we even illness becomes wellness. That's right. And, uh, but how do you get from I to we, and, you know, our friend Anasa, um, who's one of the people, one of the people in that chapter, um, I love what she said in that, um, in that chapter, um, because she addresses that paradox of I and we, um, and of course she has, you know, the big we, um, but she also acknowledges that, you know, that community is made up of individuals yeah. and that in some ways all of the human condition is an aggregate of billions of little decisions some of which we can just make on our own for ourselves, yeah. such that we can show up better in That's our right. communities and so there is this both and there's this both and and I think she really nailed it um yeah because the her. other thing she says in that chapter is that our systems are sick Right. right. Our systems are unwell. So how can we be well if our systems are unwell, which is why it's not enough for us to just do the individual work. We have to actually we actually we have to like, you know, make our systems well. We have to actively engage and disrupt and reimagine. Right. The the spaces that we move in. Right. And the institutions that we're a part of and the culture. Right. That we're constantly co-creating with other people. And that's also where the practice lives. Right. And she's yeah. doing amazing work in Memphis around that. Right. Yeah. She's, you know, th- that's why I asked her because she doesn't have some rockin', you know, I mean, she like does yoga and meditates and is an artist and, and, but her wellness, right. 
is like out in the world, like fully and wholly, right? Mm. And it's one of the most beautiful manifestations of wellness that I've seen, but it's not often how we think about wellness and it's not what we see when we paint a picture of what wellness looks like. Yeah. And those were a lot of the people, you know, that I called in. And then another woman, Dr. Yasmin Siedula, talks about, um, talks a lot about abolition culture and that we have to challenge systems that harm people. Right, that are designed to harm people or dispose of people or remove people from their families or separate people from their loved ones, right? And create um, new conditions, new structures, new cultures, new systems um, that are that are committed to to affirming all of life. Yeah. Right. That 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 is the value at the center of the new conditions and the new structures that we create. They are life affirming. Hmm. Yeah. In, in some ways, just processing this conversation in real time through reimagining wellness part of it is actually redefining it and broadening yes. it so you know i think of like when we started commune one of the central uh tenets to it was you know bridging personal and societal well-being we liked that you know but like well what does that mean what is to our work so you know i think in the first month or so we created a course that sat right alongside a yoga and meditation course with Emmy Guerica, yeah. who you know organized the the women's march here in, in LA, LA right. of how to organize a march. Well, is that wellness? And then we created a course around implicit bias, That's and we right. created a course with Julie Oliver, who ran for Congress um, right. in Texas on how to run for office. Yeah. And we did an, another course on civics and stuff in permaculture and and regenerative farming um, and, and soil. And, you know, topics that wouldn't necessarily fit kind of down the middle of mm -hmm. what might one might think about uh, how one might define wellness. and uh, In its current construct. In its current construct. And I think, you know, maybe that's what it is. And I'm just honestly, this is a, a real time thought. Well, and, and the thing about redefining that I love is like I love. I think about redefining as like an alive process, right? Because like, you know mm -hmm. how like the minute you define a thing, it changes, yeah. right? So like redefining is like a constant inquiry into like, what is it now? And then what is it now? And then how is it changing? And, you know, and, and I've been kind of going around and asking people what wellness means to them. And one of the things I love that I heard from someone was wellness means different things at different moments, right? So like, how is wellness changing for people too, mm. right? And how do we create a, a wellness ecosystem that is so complex, that has so much capacity to hold our many different needs, right? That's self-determined, where people get to decide for themselves what wellness is, right? And isn't and it isn't some prescription by some yeah. like self-help guru, right? That mm -hmm. has all the answers to how you know we can become superhuman or whatever it is. And so I feel like you know, like imagining into a wellness culture um, that's counter to the one we have means imagining into one that's messy <laughs> mm -hmm. and complex and diverse and ever changing and ever evolving and. Um, and, and how can we be adaptable, right? So that we can just keep responding to the emerging needs as they come down. Yeah. Carrie, thank you for writing this book. Yay. In a way, I'm so glad that you have a fossil record <laughs> of your work and your life. And I see this as, like you say, an evolving- 100%. Um, work. And, and you're very honest about it. You're asked as many questions as you answer in here and you engage 
And I think that's what we need to do because conversations just might be the one thing that stand between us and the world that our hearts know is possible. And so I applaud your bravery with this and just uh, all your work. Thank you. uh, And your activism and your willingness to put yourself on the line over and over again. I appreciate that. And and what I'll just share with you is like the place that I got to at the end of this book that felt, I feel like it took 324 pages for me to get there because I I was going through this book and I was like, we have to give this up and we have to detox this and dismantle that. and And it was all kind of like letting go of things. And the place that I got to at the end of this book that I needed to get to in my own like spirit and soul was that actually there's more. Like beyond whiteness, beyond, you know, com- the commodification of, of wellness, beyond colonization, beyond all the constructs that had been placed on us, right? Um, beyond our environmental situation, right? beyond the injustice and the, you know, beyond all of this, like if we can get beyond it, there's more, like there's more beauty and there's more potential and there's more song and dance and creativity and, you know, hopefully there's a future there for us. And so... Um, so thank you for saying that and and that's sort of the thing that keeps me going there's more that sounds an awful lot like hope (laughs) (laughs) I don't know something like that thanks Gary thanks Jeff thank you for listening to my conversation with Carrie Kelly Keep abreast of her work at citizenwell.org. That's C-T-Z-N-Well.org. And please pick up a copy of her new book, American Detox. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort is put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. It's not one of those shows where I spend 15 minutes on ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with constructive criticism and suggestions at Jeff K at onecommune.com. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Savannah Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from The Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.